0: Welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast. I'm your host, Linda Cherry. This week, we are studying Exodus 35 through 40 and several chapters of the book of Leviticus with their emphasis on the tabernacle in the wilderness. Our teacher today is Casey Griffiths, the co-author of the book, 50 Relics of the Restoration. We want to remind you that you can receive 20% off on any Cedar Fort product by going to cedarfort.com and using the code PODCAST20 at checkout. Thank you so much for joining us each week. We deeply appreciate your support and remind you that you might wanna share this podcast and be sure to subscribe and like and leave any comments below. Thank you. Hi, everybody. My name's Casey Griffiths and I teach religion. And today I'm gonna walk you through Exodus 35 through 40 Leviticus 1 16 and 19. Now, this is a big scripture block, probably the biggest one we've encountered so far in the Old Testament. Uh, But don't rush through it and don't skip over everything, even though it does get a little bit technical. Part of the reason why this is such a valuable scriptural block is because this is a walk through the tabernacle of Moses and it's connected in a lot of ways to what we believe in the temple and what we practice there, too. I have a friend who when he gives firesides, likes to get up and say, what if I could give you a book that told you almost everything that goes on in the temple, including the symbols and the Christology, and everybody raises their hand and wants a copy of the book? Well, the book is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is at the root of what we do in the temples. And though what we do in the temples is different today because we live under a different law than the people did. A lot of the symbology is the same, and it's all meant to point you to Jesus Christ. Now, part of the reason why it's good to know this is because there are so many temples uh, that are being built right now. Right now, under construction, are over 100 temples throughout the church, including this temple, which will be built in my own community, Saratoga Springs. In fact, this is a picture I took of the temple just the other day it's on its way. But not just Saratoga Springs. There's also temples coming to Orem, Utah. Even older temples like the good old Provo um, Temple up on the hill by Rock Canyon is going to be rebuilt and remade as the new Provo Temple to look like this when it's done. There's temples coming to places where there's a lot of Latter-day Saints like Red Cliffs, Utah and Taylorsville, Utah, and temples coming to places where the church is just barely taking root, places like Bengaluru, India or Phnom Penh, Cambodia. In fact, here in Bangkok, Thailand, you can see the temple rising from its footings. And it's just an amazing time to be alive where temples will be available to almost all the saints, no matter where they live in the world. Now, as a church, we have not always done the best job getting people ready to go to the temple. Even presidents of the church have said they kind of had a strange experience the first time they went. For instance, David O. McKay said, Do you remember when you first went through the house of the Lord? I do. And I went out disappointed. Just a young man out of college, anticipating great things. When I went to the temple, I was disappointed and grieved. And I have met hundreds of young men and young women who have had that experience. I have now found out why. So David O. McKay, like a lot of us, went to the temple and was confused a little bit at first. It became meaningful later on. But here's his diagnosis for what we do wrong about getting ready to go to the temple. He said this: There are two things in every temple: mechanics to set forth certain ideals and symbolism, what those mechanics symbolize. I saw only the mechanics when I first went through the temple. I did not see the spiritual. I did not see the symbolism of spirituality. I was blind to the great lesson of purity behind the mechanics. I did not hear the message of the Lord. How many of us young men saw them? We thought we were big enough and with intelligence sufficient to criticize the mechanics of it. And we were blind to the symbolism, the message of the spirit. And then that great ordinance, the endowment, the whole thing is simple in the mechanical part of it, but sublime and eternal in its significance. So, one thing that we can say about going to the temple, and this is whether you're going for the first time or for the thousandth time, is to worry less about the mechanics and to worry more about the symbolism. In fact, if I were to ask you what's appropriate to discuss about going through the temple, that question alone causes a lot of discussions among us to be shut down because we know that the temple is sacred and we love the temple, but When it comes to our time outside the temple, we don't always know what's okay and what's not okay to discuss about the temple. Now, a few years ago in general conference, Elder Bednar gave a talk on this. One of the things he said was temple preparation is most effective in our homes, but many church members are unsure about what appropriately can and cannot be said regarding the temple experience outside the temple. So he gave two guidelines to guide you when you're discussing the temple outside the temple. Guideline number one, he says, because we love the Lord, we should always speak about his holy house with reverence. We should not disclose or describe the special symbols associated with the covenants we receive in sacred temple ceremonies. Neither should we discuss the holy information that we specifically promise in the temple not to reveal. Guideline number two, the temple is the house of the Lord. Everything in the temple points us to our savior, Jesus Christ we may discuss the basic purposes and the doctrine and principles associated with temple ordinances and covenants. So there are things in the temple we covenant specifically to not discuss outside the temple, but there's a lot more that we could be discussing outside the temple than we do. For instance, the doctrines and principles associated with the temple ordinances and covenants, the covenants a person makes in the temple are published openly on websites, managed by the church. And if you poke around these websites a little bit, you'll find quite a bit of information that's very, very helpful before you go to the temple for the first time. Now, if I were to ask you what information would be helpful for a person preparing to go through the temple for the first time, we could talk about clothing or timing or how things work, but those are all mechanics. I think one of the best ways to get ready to go to the temple is to actually dive into the symbolism. And even if there are certain symbols that we promise not to reveal outside the temple today, temples anciently, like this is the temple of Herod, that Jesus Christ worshipped in, and temples earlier than that, like the Temple of Solomon, that Solomon built in Jerusalem, are described vividly in the scriptures in great detail. We can use these temples as guidelines to understand our modern temples and what our experience is supposed to be in the modern temple. And there's no temple experience that is described in greater detail than the Tabernacle of Moses. Fifteen chapters of the book of Exodus Take up descriptions of what this building is supposed to look like, what its form and function is supposed to be. So, in these chapters, you've got a great chance to familiarize yourself with the symbols of the temple and use these chapters as a kind of guidance to prepare people that you love that are getting ready to go through the temple as well. The tabernacle of Moses isn't exactly the same as the temple today, and yet there are deep parallels that add to our understanding and help clarify what some of the symbolism in the temples are supposed to represent. For instance, if we do a bird's eye view of the tabernacle, we'll note that there are places where anybody can go, like the outer courtyard. Any Israelite was allowed in here, and they could walk around and observe and spend time. Then there were places that were restricted, like the holy place. The holy place was where only priests could go, and they performed their priestly duties there. And then there were the most restricted places, specifically the holy of holies, the holiest place in the tabernacle where only the high priest could go and where the Lord would appear. Now, if you can visualize this, if you're listening to it, it'll help you. If you're watching this um, on a video, I'm going to actually walk you through some imagery from a tabernacle recreation that's been built in the last couple of years. A stake in California built this. It kind of circulates its way through the church every couple of years. Where I teach, it was set up for a couple of weeks, and I walked through and took pictures. And this is a fairly faithful recreation based on the description that's given in the book of Exodus. But first, let's talk about the people that would serve in the temple, specifically the high priest. This is a recreation made by a friend of mine, Daniel Smith of the clothes that the high priest wears, which are described in detail in the book of Exodus. So one thing that you'll notice right off the bat is that the high priest is wearing kind of an unusual hat. Uh, sometimes it's translated as turban. Uh, he has on it a gold plate that has the words written saying, holiness to the Lord. In the latter days, we've taken that phrase from that little plate and emblazoned it on every single temple that we built, wherever we have, because the temple is a holy place and a place where we want to experience holiness. Now, probably the next striking thing you'll notice is the breastplate that covers the priest's chest. You'll notice there's 12 stones there. Each stone has the name of one of the tribes of Israel written on it. So the high priest is supposed to carry the people over his heart. And then if you look at his shoulders, the breastplate is also fashioned to his shoulders. You'll notice six names there. And then if you look on the other side, six names on the other side. These priests were supposed to be representative of the Lord, especially the high priests, and they were set aside and sanctified as holy beings. It mentions this in the book of Exodus. Thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and wash them with water. And thou shalt put upon Aaron the holy garments and anoint him and sanctify him that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. So the holiest thing about the tabernacle was the people. The people had to be, Cleansed, And the entire function of the tabernacle was to help people make sacred covenants with God that allowed them to be cleansed, to enter back into God's presence. So if you're ready, let's actually go into the tabernacle itself. When you come to the gate of the tabernacle, you're going to notice the same colors that you see in the high priest's robes here. You've got red, which is obviously associated with blood. You've got purple, which was a color typically associated with royalty. And you've got blue, which symbolizes integrity. The gate of the tabernacle is emblazoned with the same colors as the high priest wears, because Jesus Christ is both the great high priest and the gate. In fact, we'll borrow a little bit from the Book of Mormon here, where in 2 Nephi 9.41, it says, the keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel. He employeth no servant there, for he cannot be deceived, for the Lord God is his name. Just as Jesus opens the door for salvation, if you were visiting the tabernacle as an ancient Israelite, the priest would open the door and let you inside. And there you would see the outer courtyard of the tabernacle. In the outer court, the first thing that probably would strike you and the nearest thing to the gate is the first altar. This is called the altar of sacrifice. The altar of sacrifice is where an ancient Israelite would bring an animal sacrifice, let's say a goat or a lamb, or there were all kinds of sacrifices. Turtle doves were used for sacrifices too. They'd give the animal to the priest. The priest would bless and anoint the animal, but the person actually had to take the animal's life themselves. This was symbolic of each of us sacrificing our natural man Within us. And if you're worried about animal rights, that's totally okay. Just keep in mind, this is a different world than the one that we live in. It was commonplace. In fact, it was an everyday thing for them to take an animal's life. So the Lord was kind of taking things that they did on a daily basis here and using them and turning them into sacred symbols to teach them. Once the animal was killed, it would be taken and placed on the altar where it would be burned. You can see these little spoons and bowls near next to it, where they would also take the blood of the animal and sprinkle it on the horns surrounding the altar itself, and sometimes at the base of the altar. Now, is there an equivalent to this in the modern temple? There are altars in modern temples, but no animal sacrifices. In modern temples, you'll see altars in places like endowment rooms, and sealing rooms. We don't practice animal sacrifice anymore. It was a mosaic covenant. The Book of Mormon instructs specifically that the law of sacrifice, at least when it comes to sacrificing animals was done away, that what we've been asked to sacrifice is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So if you go to the temple today, you won't see any animal sacrifice, but you will see people kneeling over altars and offering a broken heart and a contrite spirit as sacrifice. Now, proceeding further into the tabernacle, you're going to see a large brass basin. That's one thing I forgot to mention. The outer adornments of the tabernacle were made of brass, which was a fine metal, but we're going to get holier and holier as we get closer to God. So things become more and more precious and valuable. This basin was called the laver. And the labor was used specifically for people to cleanse themselves before they went into the tabernacle. The idea was, is that the work of living a life in the world is sometimes difficult, dirty, and yet bloody. And they needed to be cleansed from their sins before they entered back into the presence of the Lord. Now, is there a modern equivalent to this in the temple today? Probably the closest thing we have is The baptismal font that you'll find in the basements of most temples. The baptismal font actually is closer to the Sea of Bronze, which was built in the Tabernacle, not the Tabernacle, the Temple of Solomon. Solomon's Temple actually had a bigger version of the laver that was much larger and was built on the back of 12 oxen. Oxen being a symbol of Israel, but also a symbol of the tribe of Ephraim. Now, this Labor allowed people to be cleansed before they could enter back into the tabernacle, which represented the presence of God. Likewise, baptism, whether it's outside the temple or inside the temple, allows us, our loved ones and our ancestors, to be cleansed before we enter back into God's presence. So tons of parallels here, but obviously some big differences because of how much the atonement of Jesus Christ changed things and leads us to where we are right now. Now, proceeding into the tabernacle, the next thing that you'll see is the tabernacle proper. This is the actual structure of the tabernacle, but you'll notice that the tabernacle, like everything else, including the two altars that we've already seen, had Portability built into it. You may have noticed on the altar of sacrifice those rings off to the side because they were able to put sticks uh, through the rings and pick them up and carry them to where they needed to go. Now, if you enter into the tabernacle proper, the first place that you're going to come to is called the holy place. And typically, only the priests would enter into the holy place. And there you would see three striking articles of furniture. The sacred candlestick, sometimes also known as the menorah, there was the table of showbread, and there was the altar of incense. Each one of these performed a specific function in helping people come unto God and understand who and what he was. The sacred candlestick, for instance, or the menorah, was intended to convey light within the Holy of Holies. The table of showbread, which you may have noticed, had six loaves of bread on each plate totaling 12 was also accompanied by a container of wine, bread and wine, which are symbols we should be familiar with. Now, this was unleavened bread, which ties back to the Israelite symbol that they weren't able to let their bread rise before they fled from Egypt. And then finally, there's the altar of incense, where a priest would come and burn incense. And this was supposed to symbolize prayers going up to God. In fact, in the New Testament, The father of John the Baptist, Zacharias, was an Aaronic priest, and he was actually in the temple on the day he had drawn the lot to burn incense when the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that he and his wife were going to have a son. Now, behind it, you'll notice the veil. And this veil is emblazoned with angels or cherubim, signifying divine guardians that guard the presence of God. Now, this is about as far as even a priest in Moses' day would go. They labor inside the holy place, but not go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and typically only once a year. Now, inside the Holy of Holies, is what's considered the most sacred space within the tabernacle itself. And you'll see there the most sacred object that the Israelites had, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box made out of acacia or shittim wood that was then overlaid with gold. And all the adornments within the tabernacle proper were made of gold. Everything outside was made of brass, symbolizing greater purity and greater beauty as we approach the presence of God. On top of the tabernacle was this, On top of the um, Ark of the Covenant is this lid that has two cherubim as well that guard the way and protect the sacred objects that were found inside this. This was known as the mercy seat. And this is the place where God would manifest himself to the prophet and to the high priest in Moses' day. Now, if we lifted up the lid inside the Ark, we would see a couple items. Among them, there's a pot of manna signifying that Israel was fed in the wilderness. There was also Aaron's rod. You'll remember the story where Aaron's rod, which was taken from an olive tree, uh, sprouted new growth, even though it had been off the olive tree for years. I'm sorry, the almond tree for years. This signified that Israel was led in the wilderness. And then there were the tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on, signifying that Israel was taught in the wilderness. This sacred box was carried everywhere by the Israelites. And I know the image we have is that it melts people's faces off because it's so powerful. It was powerful. And there are instances like with Uzzah where its powers manifest. Uzzah was a guy who thought the Ark was going to fall. He reached out his hand to steady it and he was struck dead. There's a lot of complex symbology behind that. But the point is, is that this was the house of the Lord. His tent in the middle of the Israelite camp that everybody surrounded. All the tribes set up their tents with the opening facing the tabernacle because it was the center and the heart of their faith. And one thing I noticed as I toured through this uh, recreation of the tabernacle was that it got darker and darker until the darkest place was actually the Holy of Holies. I asked myself, why would the Holy of Holies be the darkest place? And to the Israelites, it wasn't. The Holy of Holies was illuminated by the presence of God. It would have been the brightest place when God manifested himself. And it says in the book of Exodus that when the tabernacle was completed, a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That cloud and that pillar of fire, those two familiar symbols. Now, we've been doing this all along, but let's take a few minutes and talk about the modern temple and try and identify some parallels. Just like the Savior used the symbols that were familiar to the Israelites, for instance, making the holy place a tent in their midst, the Savior used symbols that were familiar to the early saints as they built their sanctuaries and sacred structures. That leads up to the modern sanctuaries and sacred structures that we worship in today. So let's go back to 1836. This is when the first temple built by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was dedicated in Kirtland, Ohio. This is a beautiful structure, but in a lot of ways, it looks like a typical New England meeting house. It doesn't have um, things that we're familiar with today, like the baptismal font or endowment rooms or sealing rooms, because those ordinances hadn't been revealed yet. And yet this is a very sacred spot, a sacred as the tabernacle of Moses, because this is a place where the Savior manifested himself. On April 3rd, 1836, during the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, or the season of dedication, the Savior manifested himself to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. You can find a record of this manifestation in section 110 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Not only the Savior, but Moses, the prophet that revealed the original tabernacle, manifested himself there, along with Elias, who we don't know exactly who that is, and Elijah, the ancient prophet who held the keys of sealing and committed the keys of this dispensation into the hands of of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. Now, as time went on and our temple theology became more complicated, our temple symbology became more complicated. The Nauvoo Temple, which was built and designed in Nauvoo, the architect was William Weeks, had a number of wonderful design features. For instance, you could see moons and you could see suns and stars. The best source that we have indicates that these adornments represented not the three degrees of glory, but the woman described in the book of Revelation who had the light of the moon at her feet and the light of sun in her face and wore a crown of stars. It also had an angel at the top. So as you see angels prevalent and prominent in the ancient tabernacle, it's not surprising that angels have become prevalent and prominent in the modern temple as well. As time went on, our temple became even more sophisticated. This is the Salt Lake Temple, which is kind of the great-grandmother of all temple symbols throughout the church, and you see its symbology mirrored in many of the temples that are built, though every temple is just a little bit different. In the Salt Lake Temple, the outside is supposed to get you ready to be taught symbolically on the inside. For instance, if you go to the West Tower, you can see right here the Big Dipper, carved into the side of the temple. Now you might be asking yourself, why is the Big Dipper carved into the side of the Salt Lake Temple? Well, there's a number of reasons why it could be there and symbols shouldn't necessarily be locked into one interpretation. But one interpretation is that the reason why the Big Dipper is there is because in the Northern Hemisphere, where the Salt Lake Temple was built, it's the most prominent constellation. If you can find the Big Dipper You can find the Little Dipper. If you find the Little Dipper, you can find Polaris, the North Star. If you can find the North Star, then you can navigate. You can tell where you're at. And so symbolically, they may have wanted to convey that if you come to the temple, you can find Jesus Christ. And if you can find Jesus Christ in your life, you can navigate. Now, there's other symbols, like you might see here, the all-seeing eye above one of the doors. The first time I went to the temple with my wife, I wanted to impress her, so I read a book on symbolism, and I remembered pointing at this and saying, this is the all-seeing eye of God. It's there to teach you that you can't escape God's gaze, that he will always know what you're doing. You can't get away with anything. My wife looked at it and said, I think it's there to represent that God is always watching over us and that he's protecting us, and I remember thinking, that's adorable, but you're wrong. I read a book on temple symbolism. Well, she wasn't wrong. And part of the reason why symbolic teaching is used in the temple is because it can mean different things to different people. She was absolutely right if that's what the symbol means to her. And it probably means that she gets into a little less trouble with God than I do because... I was using a much guiltier association. Now, even that idea of cherubim is complicated and used in the modern temple as well. Like, if you've ever had a chance to visit the Salt Lake Temple, you may have noticed these alcoves on the sides of the doors that appear empty. Originally, these alcoves were uh, filled with statues of Joseph and Hiram Smith representing messengers. An angel is a messenger that guards the presence before we enter into God's house. Symbolically, the same thing still happens today because the first presidency, the Quorum of the 12, the prophets and apostles, and other leaders of the church, male and female, help determine the worthiness standards allow a person to receive a temple recommend to go back into God's presence. So just like there were angels guarding the way to God's presence anciently, there are angels or angelic messengers guarding the way to God's presence today. They're just mortal angels that work in concert with immortal angels along the way. Now, if we go inside the temple, a few years ago on Temple Square, there was this model, this nice model that was built that had the side of the building cut away so you could see the interior of the building as well. And you'll notice just like the Tabernacle of Moses, there are different compartments that a person goes through until they get to the celestial room, which represents the presence of God, just as the Holy of Holies represented the presence of God in the Tabernacle of Moses. Other temples have followed suit and built similar models. Like here's the Washington DC temples model. You can actually see the actual temple when it was under construction in the background there. These temples have streamlined the process a little bit. There won't be as many rooms as there were in temples back in Joseph Smith's day. The Manti temple and the Salt Lake temple until recently, for instance, had creation rooms, garden rooms, Rooms representing the telestial world, the terrestrial world, and the celestial kingdom. More modern temples like Washington, D.C. just have endowment rooms that feed into a central celestial room. But all these rooms are supposed to represent the presence of God. And they can also be used for other purposes, like Washington, DC and Salt Lake, you may have noticed, have large assembly halls on their top floor that are sometimes used to hold meetings and trainings. And that'll that those assembly halls exist in a number of modern and older temples. For instance, Nauvoo. Obviously, Kirtland has one. Los Angeles has one as well. So does Washington, D.C. and Salt Lake. But the central focus is the Celestial Room. And just as the Holy of Holies represented sacredness and God's presence, in the modern temple, the Celestial Room represents the sacred presence of God. But you might have noticed it's a lot comfier. There's places to sit. It looks like a nice family room where we can spend time with God and spend time with the people that we love and that we care about. This is the celestial room in the Ochre Mountain Temple, I believe, picture I took off the church's website. Now, let's try and put this all together. First of all, when it comes to understanding the tabernacle and when it comes to understanding the modern temple, the key to the symbols, the President McKay said it was so important for us to understand, are basically the same. President Russell M. Nelson gave a major key to understanding the symbolism of the modern temple he said this the temple is a house of learning much of the instruction imparted in the temple is symbolic and learned by the spirit this means we are taught from on high temple covenants and ordinances are a powerful powerful symbol of christ and his atonement we all receive the same instruction but our understanding of the meaning of the ordinances and covenants will increase as we return to the temple often with the attitude of learning and contemplating the eternal truths taught. So same thing from a newer prophet. It's symbolic, and we need to be willing to embrace the symbolism and be taught by the Spirit. Symbols can mean different things to different people. That might mean that you have a different experience going through the temple your first time than you do going through for your hundredth time. But the beauty is is that each time you go through, whether it's your first or your hundredth, you can learn something new and powerful that can point you to Christ. Now, President Nelson goes on to say essential ordinances of the gospel symbolize the atonement baptism by immersion is symbolic of the death burial and resurrection of the Redeemer partaking of the sacrament renews baptismal covenants and also renews our memory of the Savior's broken flesh and of the blood he shed for us. Ordinances of the temple temple symbolize our reconciliation with the Lord and seal families together. So, in every ordinance, whether it's the temple ordinances, the baptismal ordinance, or even taking the sacrament on Sunday, a major key to unlocking and understanding the symbolism is to look at it and say, What does this teach me about the atonement of Jesus Christ? How does this help me understand? Jesus, what he did for me, and how he's the way back to salvation. More recently, another apostle pointed out the same thing. Elder Jeffrey R. Hall in a General Conference said, when one goes to the Holy Temple for the first time, he or she may be somewhat awestruck by that experience. Our job is to ensure that the sacred symbols and revealed rituals, the ceremonial clothing and visual presentations never distract from, but rather point towards the Savior whom we are there to worship. You can see the same thing that President McKay said, don't let the mechanics of the temple distract you from the symbols of the temple and the way that they point you to Christ. Elder Holland went on to say this, the temple is his house and he should be uppermost in our minds and hearts, the majestic doctrine of Christ pervading our very being just as it pervades the temple ordinances. From the time we read the inscription over the front door to the very last moment we spend in the building, among all the wonder we are wonder we encounter, we are to see above all else the meaning of Jesus in the temple. Now, how does the temple help us go there? The inscription right above the door says, holiness to the Lord and the house of the Lord. If you'll turn to Leviticus 19, you're going to notice a connection between holiness and being like Jesus Christ. The instruction that Moses gave was to speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and saying to them, ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Then if you read through the rest of Leviticus 19, you're going to notice that over and over the Lord says the path of holiness is to do your best to keep the commandments, to observe the Sabbath day, to be kind to other people. He emphasizes taking care of strangers, and making sure that they are welcomed at home. And each one of these things, whether it's a tabernacle in the desert, or a temple in the midst of a modern city are intended to make us more holy, to purge from us the stains of the world and help us become more like God and Jesus Christ in our quest to gain immortality and eternal life. Now, in modern temples, the ordinances that we practice are different than the ordinances practiced in Moses' temple. A quick glance through the book of Leviticus will reveal that they had a system based on sacrifices. The sacrifices were intended to purge out the worldliness from them. Our ordinances in the temple today do not involve any kind of animal sacrifice, but like we mentioned earlier, they involve the sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So real quick, let's walk through the ordinances in the temple. First ordinance is called the initiatory ordinance. It's actually very similar to that washing and anointing that took place in the temple anciently with the priests. However, rather than just the priests being washed and anointed and set apart, today all men and women who go through the temple are washed and anointed and given specific blessings. One of the really unique and wonderful things about our temple today is that women perform this ordinance on behalf of other women. My wife, for instance, who had had questions and concerns about women in the priesthood, had all of them solved when she went to the temple and saw women performing ordinances with authority for other women. One description of the initiatory ordinances given by another apostle, this is Elder Robert D. Hales. He said, when we enter the house of the Lord, the ordinances and the spirit that attend us sanctify our souls. This sanctification begins with the initiatory ordinances of washing and anointing. These are preparatory ordinances. They provide the cleanliness and purification we need to receive the endowment. When it comes to this ordinance too, we're not only washed, we're also clothed in special garments. Just like the priests anciently had to wear specific clothes, the priests today wear symbolic clothing under their clothes. Because back then, priest was a full-time job. Today, we have full-time jobs in addition to being priests and leaders in, in the in the kingdom of God. Uh, Boyd K. Packer explained this. He said the ordinance of washing and anointing are referred to often in the temple as initiatory ordinances. It will be sufficient for our purposes to only say the following. associated with the endowment are washing and anointings, mostly symbolic in nature, but promising definite immediate blessings as well as future blessings. In connection with these ordinances in the temple you will be officially clothed in the garment and promised marvelous blessings in connection with them. It is important that you listen carefully as these ordinances are administered, and that you try to remember the blessings promised and the conditions upon which they will be realized. So one easy thing to remember is just as the priest anciently wore symbolic clothing, the priest's that are anointed and washed in the temple today are given symbolic clothing. One difference is that both men and women are washed and anointed and given the symbolic clothing. Another major difference is that this was only an ordinance granted to the tribe of Levi. Today, everybody is uh, who qualifies for temple ordinances is given these sacred clothes to wear. These clothes represent our covenants. For instance, a pamphlet on preparing to enter the holy temple published by the church says The garment represents sacred covenants. It fosters modesty, becomes a shield and protection of the wearer. The garment covering the body is a visual and tactile reminder of the covenants made in the temple. For many church members, the garment has formed a barrier of protection when the wearer has been faced with temptation. Among other things, it symbolizes our deep respect for the laws of God, among them the moral standard. Now, from there, we move into the second ordinance of the temple, which is the endowment the endowment embodies sacred covenants. It includes receiving instruction, power from on high, and the promise of blessings on conditions of our faithfulness to the covenants we make. President Brigham Young defined the endowment the following way. Your endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord, which are necessary for you after you have departed in this life to enable you to walk back to the presence of the Father and gain your eternal exaltation. So that idea of walking back into God's presence, passing people or sentinels or angels that act as witnesses is to basically get you back into God's presence. The same thing that the tabernacle did anciently, the temple today does on its own too. Now, the ordinances we know and we're aware of, the ordinances... Uh, of the temple and the covenants that we make there include things like consecration, the law of sacrifice. Elder James E. Talmadge listed off some of these in his book, The House of the Lord. He said, the ordinances of the endowment embody certain obligations on the part of the individual, such as covenant and promise to observe the law of strict virtue and chastity, to be charitable, benevolent, tolerant, and pure, to devote both talent and material means to the spread of truth and the uplifting of the race to maintain devotion to the cause of truth and to seek in every way to contribute to the great preparation that the earth may be made ready to receive her King, the Lord Jesus Christ. With the taking of each covenant and the assuming of each obligation as a promised blessing is pronounced contingent upon the faithful observance of those conditions. Now, having made all of those covenants, we find ourselves back again, whether we're in the ancient or in the modern temple at the veil. And I want to point out here maybe the most important difference between the tabernacle of Moses and the system that the Israelites followed and the current law that we live under, the higher law, the law of Christ. On the day that Jesus Christ was crucified, according to the Gospel of Matthew, which was written with Jewish people in mind, they walked into the temple in Jerusalem and they saw that the veil had been rent in twain, it had been torn. It had been symbolically torn to represent that it was no longer just the function and office of the high priest to enter into God's presence, but that in Jesus Christ laying down his life and then being resurrected, the gate had been opened for all people to enter into God's presence. You'll note that the veil you can see here has those same symbolic colors, red, purple and blue, that the high priest wore, and that the gate of the tabernacle had as well. All this just reinforces the idea that the great high priest, as he's described in the epistle of the Hebrews, is Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ opens the veil so that every single one of us can return back into God's presence. Now, I hope you'll read through these chapters, and it's a big reading assignment, but I hope you'll take your time to think deeply. I've just given you the basics for the symbolism of the tabernacle here. As you dive in, you'll notice more and more and make more and more connections that will allow you to have a deeper understanding of how the ancient Israelites used the tabernacle to come into Christ and how the modern-day House of Israel uses temples to come into Christ and enter into God's presence again. The temple is one of the greatest blessings that we have in this life, one of the best things that the Lord has given to us to help us come unto him. In fact, another way to think of the temple is this. This is something Elder David A. Bednar said. He said, the temple is the point of intersection between heaven and earth. In the sacred place, holy work will be performed through selfless service and love. The temple reminds me of all that is good and beautiful in the world. One way I like to think of it sometimes is that the temple is like an embassy for the celestial kingdom. Um, You know how if you're in a foreign country and you're an American and you need help, you can go to the American embassy, wherever it is. Or if you're British, you can go to the British embassy and so on and so forth. That embassy, if you're an American, represents American soil. It is American soil. The minute that you step into the embassy, you're back in America. Likewise, The temples, of which there's an increasing number around the world, is like the embassy of God's kingdom. It's the embassy of the celestial kingdom. When you enter into the temple, you're leaving the world that we live in and setting foot on sacred celestial soil. And the good news is is that there's a lot more celestial soil coming into the church and temples being built all over the place in diverse locations like India, like Kiribati, a number of places. Where they haven't always had as much opportunity to go to the temple, are receiving this wonderful opportunity. So, whether the temple is just a few minutes away from your house, or whether it's a once in a lifetime experience based on where you live to go to the temple, I hope you'll think and pause and reflect and not only go to the temple, but in wearing the sacred clothing that makes you a a priestly figure in your life you'll remember that you took a part of the temple home with you, and that it always remains close to you. Just like the high priest wore his vestments, and they symbolize carrying the people on his shoulders and in his heart, we wear our temple clothing at all times close to us to represent the covenants that we've made with God and the closeness that we want to have with him. So I want to thank you so much for the time you spent with me this day. I want to testify to you of the power and importance of the Holy Temple and the beauty that can be found therein, and just tell you that every single time I've gone to the temple, including the first to the latest, has been an uplifting and wonderful experience that's helped me understand Jesus Christ a little bit better and brought me closer to God. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.